Welcome to the Fern Podcast, As the Season Turns. Released on the first of the month, each episode follows the changing landscape of the seasons, from the moon and the stars to the tides and the trees. I'm Leah Landertz, author of The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide, and this podcast is a collaboration between myself and Fern, makers of small-batch organic perfume who blend, barrel-age and bottle four fragrances a year, released at the equinoxes and solstices. I love wearing fern. In my quest to live in tune with the seasons, applying the season's perfume is a lovely little ritual that reminds me to use all my senses. We hope that this brief guide to the month ahead will awaken you to the rhythms of the year and help you to settle deeper into the seasons. The Sunrise On August the 1st, sunrise is at 5.11am in Inverness and 5.50am in Padstow. That is 39 minutes later than last month at Padstow and 48 minutes later in Inverness. Last month, the change in day length was by just a few minutes, but now it is speeding up, particularly in the far north, which has much further to go moving from being the lightest part of the country around midsummer to the darkest at midwinter. The 1st of August is Lammas, or Loafmas, the celebration of the first harvest, or the taking of the first sheaves of wheat. We are officially into harvest time now. And Lammas has a very important dawn ritual attached to it, particularly in parts of Scotland. The best known of Lammas traditions involve wheat, bread and the spirit of the corn, sometimes known as John Barleycorn. But as well as performing rituals to protect the harvest, communities carried out rituals to protect livestock too. In Scotland, this was the day that heralded the end of summer grazing, when cattle were brought from high pastures up in the hills, down into the straths or valleys. Cattle were blessed, their ears were hung with charms, and blue and red thread was plaited through their tails. The milk that was taken from the cattle at dawn on Lammas Day was considered special and was made into a small cheese to be given to children to bring them luck for the season ahead. In the Pond As the summer wears on, Activity within the pond calms down from the fever pitch of spring and early summer. The water is warm and soupy, algae bloom and duckweed flourishes, and the growth around the pond is full and lush and deep green, but tinged with wear here and there. Grasshoppers stridulate from the long golden grasses surrounding the pond, one of the final mating calls of the year. Swallows and swifts swoop over larger ponds, scooping their last drinks before setting off for Africa. There are more seed heads than there are flowers in the garden, and any ducklings and moorhen chicks have finally left their mothers and set out on their own. Everything is wrapping up now. Breeding has taken place. Babies have been raised. Minds are turning to winter. But a few tadpoles may have been left behind. If you see any now, they may have, 
Peter Pan syndrome. That is, they have grown and grown, but failed to develop in other ways. This is more likely to happen in a cold summer, and it is nothing to worry about. Tadpoles can overwinter, and if they make it through, they will be well set up for next spring, able to grow to maturity ahead of the rest of the pack. There is still plenty of life under the surface. The larvae and nymphs have mostly sunk down into the mud at the bottom of the pond, and there are fewer surface creatures darting about. Predatory larvae of bugs, dragonflies and beetles will still swim up to the surface to take drowning flies. Late summer rains will often arrive this month, refreshing both the pond and the garden. But before that, the rim of mud surrounding the pond makes it easy to see the footprints of the mammals that have been visiting it, such as voles, hedgehogs and foxes. Gardens to enjoy this month. Ornamental. Dahlias, sunflowers, gladioli, crocosmia, cornflowers, crabapples, honesty seed heads, dill flowers, heleniums, sea holly, agapanthus, veronicastrum, verbena, clematis, marigolds, zinnias, nicotianas, phlox, lords and ladies, ornamental grasses. Edible. Plums, apples, pears, blackcurrants, elderberries, blueberries, loganberries, melons, raspberries, redcurrants, strawberries, cherries, tomatoes, sweet corn, aubergines, French beans, runner beans, main crop potatoes, Florence fennel, globe artichokes, sweet peppers, chili peppers, marjoram, thyme, oregano, basil and mint. The Herbarium In the herbarium, the writer stands on clouds, pale clustered flowers on long stems spread out beneath her feet, their scent rising to her rapturous nose. She paces across them, sniffing, and pauses to write down her thoughts. August, Meadow Sweet the sight of meadow sweet's creamy heads high over ditches and along stream banks fills me with joy, for it promises one of my favourite perfumes of summer. Press your nose into the foaming flowers of meadow sweet, dust your face with pale pollen, and breathe in vanilla, honey, and marzipan. None of these comparisons is quite right, since meadow sweet's scent is all its own, and I urge you to try it. The name meadowsweet derives from its use as a flavouring for mead rather than its habitat, but its many other regional names also tell stories. Its Celtic name is Chris Cucullan, or Belt of Cucullan, the legendary warrior, because it was used to calm his fits of rage and fevers. The flowers and leaves were indeed well known as a treatment for malaria or fever and can still be used to encourage a sweat today. While names like Queen of the Meadow, Queen's Feather or Lady of the Meadow abound and are deserved for such a pretty, fragrant plant towering high over others, it was also called Kiss Me Quick in Somerset and Courtship and Marriage in Cumbria and beyond. There are many theories about these names, but my favourite, and one that rings true, 
says it is inspired by the difference between the sweet early flowers and the bitter later ones. Summer love with meadowsweet does not last. The active ingredient in aspirin, salicylic acid, was first derived from meadowsweet, and the drug's name was based on meadowsweet's old Latin name, spirea. The plant contains salicylate salts, and as well as being sweet-tasting, can relieve aches and inflammation. You can make delicious syrup, tea and other sweet things from meadowsweet, but an old and delightful use for it was as a strewing herb for floors, at festivals and weddings, but also through the halls and rooms at home. As Gerard attests in his herbal, the smell thereof maketh the heart merry and delighteth the senses. A carpet of flowers that sends up its fragrance as you tread is such a delicious idea, if a little messier than a scented candle. Meadowsweet enthusiasts should beware, though. It was thought that the heady scent of this flower in a bedroom could induce such a deep sleep that the sleeper might never wake. The Mabinogion tells the story from Welsh mythology of Bloodoeth, the woman made from flowers for a man cursed never to have a human wife. She is made from the flowers of oak, broom and meadowsweet, a mix that seems all the more magical in August when the oak blossoms are gone but meadowsweet is wafting its inimitable fragrance across the countryside. August's Island, St Kilda. 50.1172 degrees north, 5.4778 degrees west, 64 kilometres west-northwest of North Uist, Scotland. Islands, four. Permanent population, zero. Prepared for its remoteness and for the million seabirds that make their homes there, visitors to the volcanic archipelago of St Kilda are often most awed by its height. Its tallest cliff at Conacare is 420 metres, or 1,400 feet tall, one of the highest sea cliffs in Europe. For context... Glastonbury Tor is about 160 metres, while Scarfell Pike, England's highest mountain, is just under 1,000 metres. These craggy cliffs, for most people, are sights to enjoy from the safety of the water, or better, the ground. But for the St Kildans, who lived here for thousands of years until the final 30 were evacuated in 1930, the heights presented an opportunity not to be missed. During the seabird breeding season, St Kilda's cliffs turn white with feathers and droppings. Gannets, kittiwakes, puffins, fulmars, petrels, shearwaters and shags are among the many species that congregate here to create a seabird super city, the largest in Europe. For us today, we might see this as an incomparable natural spectacle. But for an islander with little to eat, St Kilda's seabirds represented a seemingly endless food supply. Each year, the island's parliament would decide which area of the cliffs to clear, and a group of skilled climbers would set out to harvest eggs and chicks over a period of about three weeks. Armed only with horsehair ropes, which were tested with the body weight of four men, the climbers would scale the crags in bare feet or socks, baskets strapped to their backs. This was dangerous and difficult work, 
but provided food and lamp oil for the St Kildans for a year. Though it sounds brutal, this practice was long part of the unique St Kildan ecosystem. Now, with no more St Kildans to hunt them, the birds are protected and seabird hunting continues only in a few places in the world, notably the Faroe Islands. But the birds of St Kilda face worse threats than a few men on the end of a rope industrial fishing and climate change chief among them. We can only hope, and work hard to fulfil the hope, that St Kilda's skies will be white with gannets for many years to come. You may wish to pause the podcast here for a moment, while you find somewhere warm and quiet, to close your eyes, sit back and settle down, just for a minute, into this month's Found Sound. For August's Found Sound, I travelled to the Peak District National Park in central England. With seven rivers running through the Peak District, it's no wonder that this area is famous for its water. Oh, and also, it's rain. The rivers and wetlands are home to key wildlife, including red-listed birds such as the curlew and threatened fish species, including the reintroduced Atlantic salmon. As with the majority of the UK's rivers, the Peak District's waters are increasingly polluted. This threatens our beautiful wildlife and its resilience in the face of the climate crisis, as well as our own health and well-being. As more of us share our love for our rivers, we can unite to protect and restore these vital ecosystems. August's perfume ingredient, Nerily. Nerily is a stunning scent, both sweet and sour, fresh and rich. Its honey, citrusy notes have seduced perfumiers for centuries. It is distilled from the delicate, pale blossoms of Citrus aurantium, a beneficent tree which also provides petit grain, orange flower and bitter orange. The blossoms from which fern derives their green, airy nerily are hand-picked dew-fresh at dawn from Seville orange trees on Cape Bon in Tunisia, a dry, dusty peninsula that juts out into the Tyrrhenian Sea, layered with thousands of years of human history. Once picked, the blossoms are immediately pressed and distilled. Every second they sit in the morning sun detracts from Nerily's characteristically fresh scent. 
It takes over 1,000 blossoms to make just one kilogram of oil, making it precious and expensive. Orange trees need the cold of winter to blossom, but most varieties cannot tolerate any frost. This makes the coastal Mediterranean climate, which sees cool winters and warm summers, perfect for them to thrive. The quality of Tunisian Neroli is widely regarded to be the best in the world. Jean-Paul Guerlain is said to have his own grove there. But the same Neroli harks back to a 17th century Italian princess, Anne-Marie Orsini, later the de facto ruler of Spain, who lived in the town of Nerola in Lazio. Anne-Marie is said to have fallen in love with the orange blossoms that grew in spring and was the first to distill the oil, which was used to scent her gloves, clothes and baths. The craze for this seductive oil quickly spread among the locals and across the world and is now one of the best beloved fragrance ingredients. The Sunset Glowworms By night, high summer can be a strange, discomforting time. Amid all the talk of sunshine and beach days, night times can feel stuffy, the air still skin temperature. But humid nights on certain moonless country lanes can take on a magic all their own. Stroll between high hedges between June and August, and you may be rewarded with a remarkable sight. The greenish, bioluminescent light of glowworms lighting the way. Only the flightless female glowworms light up. Illuminating a small patch towards the back end of her abdomen, she hopes to attract a mate, skimming overhead with his large and light-sensitive eyes. Hedge-lined lanes are good glowworm hangouts because the female can hide in the dense vegetation during the day, emerging to glow in the darker hours. But you may also see them on heathland, in meadows, on cliffs and in woodland. Sadly, we must note that these are vanishing habitats, and this, alongside light pollution, means that glowworms are not as common as they once were. They've made an indelible mark on our folklore and culture, though, appearing everywhere in literature, from Marvel to Coleridge to Thomas Hardy. Glowworms also have practical uses, having supposedly been used for everything from emergency bike lights to predicting the weather. Sometimes cheering, sometimes unearthly, glowworms are a precious sight for summer evenings. The Moon This August has two full moons, one on the 1st of August and one on the 31st. The first full moon in August is known as the Grain Moon or the Lynx Moon and the second as the Wine Moon or Song Moon. When two appear in one month, the second is a blue moon. The last quarter phase falls on the 8th of August at 11.28am. Last quarter moons rise around midnight and are at their highest point as the sun rises. The new moon falls on the 16th of August at 10.38am. The new moon rises at sunrise in the same part of the sky as the sun and so cannot be seen. 
The first quarter phase falls on the 24th of August at 10.57am. The first quarter moon rises near noon and is at its highest point as the sun sets. The Great Rift The main impression when looking at the Milky Way is of a great river of stars processing through the heavens. But it is not all stars. Here and there are dark patches. These are dark nebulae, also known as absorption nebulae. The largest of them is the Great Rift, which cuts a path along the line of Cygnus, the Swan. The absence of stars here is actually caused by a series of dense, overlapping dust clouds, the particles of which are smaller than those of cigarette smoke, but which are so vast and layered that they block out the light of thousands of stars. Any that you see within those dark spaces are simply closer to us than the dust clouds are. Moonless nights from midsummer to September offer the best chance to view the Great Rift. Through August it will be at its highest point at around midnight. It will continue to be prominent into September. On the hillside, the bonfire is burning steadily. You climb towards it, the dark sky above you shining with stars. As you approach, the sound of music gets louder. Just outside the firelight, you settle down to listen. This song is called Gwen Hewer Lily, Gwen the Colour of the Lily. And again, it's a song uh, praising um, this woman and her beauty and comparing it to the, the, the sights and sounds and smell of nature and of flowers um, and there's a lot of talk about flowers here and birds, birds of prey circling above in the clear blue sky uh, in the summer and um, even though it's a it, beautiful words but quite a haunting uh, melody to it so Gwen Hewlini Tyrion, <laughs> 
Matsui no lai sancere idiom morde tu idimere duitiom. Por ho imiliurhinon te cariati pentera. Thank you for listening to this month's episode. Please do like and subscribe. All episodes are released on the first of each month. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also enjoy my book, The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide to 2023, which this year is themed around the signs of the zodiac and the solar system. It's also available as an audiobook, read by me, Leah Lane Dertz. As the Season Turns is produced by Jeff Bird and researched by Catriona Bolt. In addition to my own contributions, Zoe Gilbert, author of Mischief Acts, wrote and read The Herbarium. The folk song was played by Welsh musician Gwilym Bowen Rees, who also provided music for the intro. Alice Boyd is the sound recordist and designer who is travelling the UK through the year to make field recordings for each month's found sounds. This podcast has been created by Fern. Fern is an organic fragrance maker based in Somerset. Working with the rhythms of the seasons, they blend, barrel age and bottle four fragrances a year. Each fragrance is made to order for the names on the Fern production ledger. To join the ledger and find out more, visit www.fern.co or visit the link in the podcast description. <laughs>